I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and I want to welcome you to this episode of New Retina Radio. Today, we are talking with a panel of experts about the surgical options for treating proliferative vitreoretinopathy. Joining me as moderators are our medical editors, Drs. Alan Ho and Bob Avery. Alan, Bob? Rebecca, thank you for the introduction. I'm Alan Ho, Director of Retina Research at Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, and I'm excited to be here with several of my colleagues, all of whom are very experienced and exceptional vitreoretinal surgeons, not just in the OR, but also I think in thinking about how we can uh, combat this particular problem that has vexed us um, throughout the history of retinal surgery. Yes, it's a real pleasure to be here with everyone. I'm Bob Avery, founder and CEO of California Retina here in Santa Barbara, California. How about we start off with a quick introduction from each of you. Dean, why don't you start? Hi, I'm Dean Elliott from Mass Pioneer. And I'm Avni Finn. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University. I'm Ajay Kurian. I'm at Mid-Atlantic Retina and Will's Eye Hospital. And I am Ali Khan. I am following Ajay around. So I'm also at Will's Eye Hospital in Mid-Atlantic Retina. Thanks everyone for joining us. We have um, this issue. One of the issues with retinal detachment, of course, is even though we attach the retina, patients may not see well. And that's one issue that a lot of people are addressing on the neuroprotection side. But throughout my career, uh, I'd say that we've made really unacceptable um, strides in a reduction of the incidence of development of proliferative vitreoretinopathy after retinal detachment surgery. Maybe we're better at repairing it and addressing it surgically, at least from an anatomic standpoint. Um, owing a lot to visualization and better tools and techniques, but we really have, um, as far as I know, and that's the purpose of getting some experts on, a really good understanding to begin to attack this problem systematically. And um, that's kind of why we wanted to bring this together, bring this group together to talk about this. Um, Ali Khan, uh, what are some major knowledge gaps that we have regarding PVR development? Yeah, I think as uh, you alluded to, there has been kind of a multi-decade process of trying to figure out why PVR happens. And I think we've you know, generally conceptualized it as some sort of cytokine milieu in, in the vitreous that allows for the abnormal proliferation of RPE cells, which leads to PVR. And from that you know, theory, a lot of molecular targets have been identified, but uh, knocking out each of those targets with a specific agent hasn't necessarily worked out. So I don't think we fully understand the pathophysiology and it's likely more complex and multifactorial than, than we've simplified in the past. And part of that might be uh, also related to the models that we have. Uh, you know, Ajay can speak a lot to this, but there's a lot of you know, animal models of PVR and you know, how accurate those models are in predicting human disease. Uh, I'm not quite sure we've established that. And perhaps that's maybe why a lot of the therapeutics we've tried uh, haven't, haven't panned out. And, you know, lastly, I think, uh, you know, studying the disease in humans is difficult. Uh, there has not been many powered clinical trials evaluating therapeutics for PVR. So despite all the efforts that, that have happened in the past for a disease that may be only affecting 10% of all RDs, 
Um, it's going to take larger series, I think, and larger clinical trials to, to fully evaluate if something might help. And I don't know if we've, we've really done that, at least recently. And luckily, there are some clinical trials uh, currently ongoing that hopefully can, can change that, which, which I know Dean is heavily involved with as well. Avni Finn, let's start at the beginning. When you first see the patient in the clinic, what are the ocular and surgical risk factors that you consider in your pre-op evaluation that may put patients at heightened risk for PVR? And, and how do you counsel your patients regarding these risk factors? Yeah, so there are certain patient and surgical factors that I consider um, both, you know, patient history and then also things that I see on clinical exam that can make a patient at increased risk of PVR and also potentially for redetachment. So the patient factors that I consider are young patients, um, those that have had a history of trauma, uh, patients that have a smoking history we know are also at an increased risk of PVR. And then there are clinical factors and, and examination factors. So in terms of clinical history, a patient that's had a history of a chronic detachment or vision loss for a longer period of time, we know PVR takes about four to six weeks to kind of start building. Um, those patients that have had more chronic detachments are at higher risk of PVR. And then the exam, I think, is really important in letting you know whether a patient is at increased risk of PVR and increased risk of redetachment from PVR. So if there's vitreous hemorrhage, if there are large breaks like giant retinal tears, um, which, of course, expose a larger area of RPE, um, choroidal detachments, hypotony, patients with uveitis, and any of these um, can lead to existing PVR, even if it's mild um, which can then predispose your patient to extensive further PVR or redetachment. So when I see any of these things or uh, obtain any of these factors on patient history, I do talk to my patients about the fact that they may be at higher risk for scar tissue forming. Um, that's the word I use for my patients when I talk about PVR um, and that they may be at heightened risk for a redetachment because of that. So let me just um, expound a little bit more on what you, what you commented on. When you talk to a patient, let's just say a routine uh, macula off, retinal detachment, pseudophagic, a weak duration, um, some breaks, no, no real PVR that you see on presentation. Um, what's the percentage that you quote? Uh, to the patient that there's a chance of scar tissue formation that will cause a, a redetachment and then surgery again? So I, I usually tell patients, you know, 90% of the time or more uh, retinal detachments are fixed with the first surgery. And that's variable across surgeons. Um, but I think, that, you know, if you kind of take all average numbers that we have, um, that's a pretty reasonable number. And um, and tell patients that about 10% or less um, of patients are at heightened risk of PVR for some reason or another, and those patients are at increased risk of a redetachment from that. Uh, I tend to be a little more conservative. You say 90%. I usually say 85%. Uh, I'm just curious, um, Ali, Dean, Bob, Ajay, uh, what, what do you counsel your patients for the chance of needing a second surgery? I guess I'm not just including PVR, but from the patient's vantage point where they're trying to 
get it done on one surgery? What do you what do you tell Bob? I tend to tell them ninety five percent because we we reviewed you know almost a thousand cases in our practice and we had like ninety seven percent success rate with buccal vits and about the same we excluded PVR cases in there. If there is uh, a high risk of PVR, such as what Abney just mentioned, I of course reduce it dramatically. But for a routine one, I, I just say about 95% for the, the basic uh, routine detachments. Uh, Dean, what do you think about that number? I think that's accurate. I tell patients roughly 90% and I may tweak it by saying, you have a pretty straightforward retinal detachment with one retinal break. So you're, you know, odds are probably a bit better than that or something like that. I don't get into too many details about the specifics of their detachment and the actual rate because I think sometimes if you say a rate like 95% or 97%, the patient just assumes that there's no way it can happen to them. And that's not the purpose of me telling them that there's a probability of failure. So I want them to remember at the beginning that it could fail. It's not 100%. Ali and Ajay, I'd be curious to, as to how you counsel patients. Uh, I, I usually say 90% as well, just because I think patients understand nine out of 10 chance of success and one out of 10 failure uh, easy. But kind of like what Dean says, if they have higher risk features, I say, you know, across all people, it's about 90%, but you're at higher risk for scar tissue formation. So just setting up the, the opportunity for PVR to, to develop. So they at least have it in their mind. I think patients who are told that there's a chance of it beforehand um, aren't so disappointed or surprised or disheartened after if it happens, but patients who are never told it was a chance of a failure beforehand are really, really upset about, you know, what happened or, you know, what went wrong during the surgery. And um, it's a little tough to, to sort of, you know, go back after the fact, but uh, preoperatively telling them, I think is, is pretty good. And I, I go with the 90%. Ajay. I agree with Ali about the importance of uh, just setting that that as a possibility for patients. I usually say 85 to 90 percent to, to cover my cover, cover all my bets there. Um, but I, I think it's important for them to know that it, it is a realistic chance that they could develop PVR. And I definitely talk more about it with patients who have other risk factors. Considering that this is a, a realistic issue for us as surgeons, decades over and over issue that we're maybe not making much progress on. Ajay, is there anything that we can do to modify that risk with any drug therapies, pharmacologic therapies? You've been on kind of the vanguard of, of PVR studies um, translationally. What do you think? That's a great question. You know, I think we're uh, super excited to have a trial that's ongoing right now, um, thanks to all of Dean's efforts. Um, and we're very excited to find out the results of that. And so. Um, I think it's, it's very exciting to have the option of intravitreal mesotrexate. And so he's already published a lot on um, the use of it outside of a randomized control study, but using uh, retrospective studies and uh, cohort control studies. And it certainly looks promising. And from the patients that I've used it in through the study, it, it certainly is very exciting. Um, I'm very excited to see what the final results are and to see if it pans out in, in the much larger study uh, that's ongoing right now. Other than, um, than that, right now, we don't have anything that we're actively treating patients who already have PVR. Um, Ali has a great study that's going on looking at trying to prevent uh, PVR in patients who are high risk of PVR using anti-VEGF agents, um, which basically target the non-canonical PDGF pathway 
And so that's also a very exciting thing to try to identify these patients who are high risk for developing PVR and try to prevent it from ever happening, which is probably uh, an easier thing to do than to uh, treat the patients who already develop PVR. And so all these things are very exciting. Um, Dean also did some great work to identify smoking as a risk factor for PVR formation. We don't quite know if smoking cessation um, at the time of repair modifies your risk for developing PVR later, but I always use it as a great opportunity to do smoking cessation counseling. And uh, for some patients, it's actually gotten them to stop. And so um, whether or not that makes a difference for them at that point is still unclear, but I think it's certainly worth talking to them about. I would like to ask Dean a question. Um, I was impressed with your talk back at the Vale Vitrectomy almost five years ago with the methotrexate, which had to be given frequently for at least 10 injections afterwards. But in the trial, it looks like we're giving it 13 times after the surgery. Can you comment on why the change and give us a little color to the, the need for protracted intervention with methotrexate? Regarding the 10 injections that was presented in Vail 2016 versus the 13 that's now being done in the GUARD trial, you know, one of the patients that received 10 injection was quite interesting. So this patient had a 13 millimeter open globe injury and developed retinal detachment. And we repaired the retinal detachment with oil. We were, he, he was found to have a total RD with retinal incarceration in the scleral wound. And we gave one injection at the end of surgery, eight weekly injections, and an additional one at week 12. Uh, so that's eight plus one plus one. And that's what we were doing for the 10 patients in that study. And only one patient had this unusual response was at 12 weeks, he actually looked very good, uh, which is pretty good because you know that's already three months out. And then at the 16 week visit, he had massive amount of pigment cells in the oil, just striking difference from four weeks prior. And soon thereafter developed an explosive PVR that was uh, extraordinary. And he ended up going downhill and, and had a light perception visual acuity at the end with massive PVR. And you know that would be really unusual to happen after an open globe injury to look great for 12 weeks and then have massive pigment and then go downhill at that late time course, right? Usually in open globe injuries, PVR happens maybe like at a month or maybe two months, but to have this happen at four months was unusual. So we thought in his particular case that maybe the stimulus was so high for PVR that we may maybe needed to add more injections to keep sustained drug levels uh, going. So therefore we went to 13 injections and that may be overkill in the vast majority of patients. Uh, first of all, I wanna qualify that. We don't even know if the drug works, but if it does work, let's just assume it works for a second. That may be overkill, uh, but nevertheless, that's why we went to 13 because we, we thought that was a very unusual response in that one patient. I remember that presentation as well, Dean, and some of your background work. Um, showing images of the chorioretinal biopsies that just had clean edges after the biopsies and leading to your observation um, in some of the work that you did in California, some of those cases with Narsing Rao. And um, yeah, I, I hope this works. We shall see. That's right. It was Narsing Rao who had sent a lot of vitreoretinal lymphoma patients uh, and we did retinal biopsies to rule out lymphoma. That's correct. 
it's great to take a clinical observation into the uh, pharma world and then into clinical trials. Good job. So uh, let's go back to just the general surgical approach. Uh, Avni, when you approach a, a patient with, say, grade C, fixed fold, PVR, what, what tricks do you have? What sort of approach do you take to um, the first time approach to a, a patient with the, that level of PVR? So I guess I'll start by saying that I think no PVR surgery is, is um, ever easy or, or um, can be approached with one sort of methodology. Um, they're all kind of take an art. Um, but one of the first things I'll consider is putting a buckle on an eye um, that has severe PVR if there's not already a buckle present and I'm not planning on um, doing a 360 retinectomy. Um, and then after that, I think the next really important step to consider is visualization during the case. Um, so if there is a cataract, um, I will go ahead and perform a lensectomy um, because you really want a, an excellent view to be able to address the PVR. Um, after that, when starting the vitrectomy, I think one of the things that you know we, we all know leads to anitis for PVR and membrane formation is if the posterior hyoid wasn't initially removed. So um, oftentimes patients who come to us will have had a vitrectomy previously, but there still remains um, residual vitreous and hyaloid. And so, um, you know, staining and making sure that you're peeling posterior membranes um, that have grown on the scaffold of um, posterior hyaloid is really important. Um, and then I use perfluoron to start stabilizing and flattening the retina after I've removed those posterior membranes um, and then work my way out more peripherally. Um, I tend to use, I like to use max grip forceps and a lighted pick um, as two of my go-to instruments. Um, when I don't have an assistant, I really like to use um, a chandelier so that I can use a bimanual technique. Um, and I've also found um, dyes pretty helpful in, in delineating membranes as well. So I think those are some of the, the highlights. Um, I think when you're finishing up the case and if you've performed a retinectomy, really good hemostasis is very important, um, especially to prevent further PVR and another detachment because um, that heme can be a milieu for potentially future PVR. Um, and then in these cases, I usually always choose a long acting tamponade. Those are excellent tips uh, for all of us. I appreciate you sharing those. I, I certainly agree. Everyone I think agrees, no need for a buckle when you do a 360 retinectomy or retinotomy. But what about you, Dean? When do you think uh, you use a scleral buckle in the absence of a 360 retinectomy? When, when do you use a buckle in PVR surgery? Well, I like the presence of a buckle in PVR cases. I think there's two instances where I probably wouldn't put one on. One is 360 retinectomy, and two is when the patient has had so much peripheral laser for 360 degrees that they essentially have no peripheral retina left because the new aura is many millimeters behind where the real aura was. So I don't think in that instance it helps to place a buckle. But in every other case, I do think a buckle helps I know it's controversial and I actually don't know uh, what the proper, uh, what the right answer is, but I prefer to err on the side of 
maybe doing too much rather than too little. So I put on a buckle even when I have 180 degree inferior retinectomy. Uh, have there been cases where I haven't? Yes, but almost all the time I do put on a buckle for those cases. What about the, the Will's approach? Uh, what are the other uh, participants, what do you do? I think there's probably gonna be variability between uh, the folks at Will's, but I actually, uh, I'm pretty similar to Dean. I have a very low threshold to put a buckle on for a PVR case, um, unless it's a 360 uh, retinectomy. That's uh, all gonna be planned. And Ali, same. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a product of that variability at, at Wills, but I think uh, it's 50-50 probably, honestly. I think with uh, 180 degree uh, inferior retinectomies, I think uh, a lot of cases I don't put on a buckle, especially if the superior retina looks looks okay and I've had success that way. So um, I'm still trying to, you know, I think there might be some surgeon specific type factors and I think everybody kind of figures out what works best in their own hands and experience. But like Dean was mentioning, I don't think there's great evidence that adding a buckle or not having a buckle really affects the outcomes. And uh, I think that's partially why PBR is so frustrating because it doesn't always make sense. But um, uh, I think one thing that I do do surgically, especially if the PBR is a little bit more posterior, is definitely staying uh, with ICG and try to peel uh, from the ILM and the macula kind of as far out as I can. Uh, I think that's something that that's helped me kind of uh, make sure that retinectomy doesn't go as posterior as it, it might look like it need to. But uh, with the with the buckle thing, I think, uh, you know, I'm probably 50% on adding a buckle if, if I'm doing a 180 retinectomy. Yeah, you can, um, you can treat PVR with a scleral buckle, uh, first of all, primarily, and avoid retinectomy. Um, we do more retinectomies now, and I think one important teaching point, um, we don't have good data, but from surgical experience, and it's, I think it's fairly well-recognized in our department, is that if you're going to do an in, uh, inferior retinectomy or really any retinectomy, you got to do a real retinectomy. And if you're going to make a retinectomy that's less than 120 degrees, let's say you see some star folds infernasally and you think you're just going to do a limited retinectomy, you better think twice about doing a retinectomy less than 120 degrees because it's going to fail. That's number one. When you go more than 120, and typically I'm usually at 180 or greater for a really bad case, um, the need for a buckle becomes, um, is obviated. Um, I still use the buckle a, a lot. I do a lot of scleral buckles on retinal detachment surgery. But when you start, um, just like in a giant retinal tear, I don't see the sense of putting a scleral buckle on a lot of those cases. The third thing is I think one of the main reasons why, and we're better today than we were in 1990 or the 2000s is, the reason for PVR a lot of times is that we're leaving a residual layer of cortical vitreous there that we don't recognize, or even more than cortical vitreous. People talk about vitreous-based shaving. And to me, um, that is depression with um, particles like triamcinolone to identify it, um, deep depression, um, and taking your time to remove that gel that's, that straddles the pars plana and aura serrata and um, anterior retina that creates the vitreous base that will contract either with gas compression or silicone oil and lead to um, anterior loop proliferation. So I, I do think that 
as Dean mentioned, vitreous-based dissection is important, but that's what I mean by vitreous-based dissection. It's really careful seeing the gel and going around meticulously to do that. Dean, let me ask you, is that the same definition of vitreous-based dissection that you have? Yes, scleral depression and removing as much vitreous as possible, keeping in mind some of the vitreous is over the pars plana and try to remove pigment cells that may have migrated onto the pars plana, especially inferiorly, obviously. Uh, also dissecting with forceps, as Avni mentioned, if uh, membranes grow onto the uh, peripheral retina and even sometimes vitreous base area and maybe even pars plana. But uh, yes, basically removing as much as you possibly can. You know, I guess PVR surgery, in my opinion, you have to be a maximalist, wherein maybe other diseases such as ROP, vitrectomy, may be good to be a minimalist. <laughs> uh, so I do like to remove everything, uh, vitreous and membranes, as much as possible. I'm going to ask um, all you experts, what, what are you most excited about for the treatment or prevention of PVR as you see it in the next five to 10 years? Maybe I'll start with um, my partner, Ali Khan. Ali? Uh, yeah, I think uh, um, with some of the current therapeutics that are in clinical trials, say the GUARD trial with methotrexate, I think everyone is hoping that that works because that might be... Um, you know, one of the first treatments we have available for people with established PVR. Um, I'm also interested in really honing in on hopefully what is really characterized as a high risk eye as a primary RD to, to really know, you know, which RDs do we really need to maybe tailor our approaches or consider some preventative treatments um, and perhaps uh, do some clinical trials on say high risk primary RDs and not only people after they've had full blown PVR. I think that would actually be where we may get the best, you know, overall outcomes in the end in terms of vision, especially. So uh, some of these clinical trials are, are ongoing. So I think we're all excited to see the, the results. And I'm hoping that we actually see just more clinical trials. I think a lot of the studies that we've mentioned in the past were pretty small, wouldn't necessarily meet, uh, you know, power calculation criteria currently. So um, it's going to take uh, a lot of people working on this together, because simply doing a prospective clinical trial alone is difficult, but doing it in surgery, I think is even harder. So I'm, I'm excited to see more surgical clinical trials, uh, especially the results of the ones that we, we have going on now. And uh, the more local we can make those treatments, I think, uh, you know, isoret no one was mentioned. I think it, there's been some promising data with that, but it's so difficult to prescribe and use orally and so many systemic side effects. So, uh, you know, all of the local therapy and options we have, I think uh, focusing on those would be great if one of those worked. What excites you, Ajay? So I echo um, Ali's sentiment. I think I'm most excited about methotrexate because it's the closest to, to something that we can have in our hands and deliver to our patients. Um, but there's a lot of exciting preclinical work that's being done also for other potential agents. And so uh, Leo Kim has done some great work looking at RUNX1 inhibitors and um, is also trying to get a, a study underway looking at rokinase inhibition. So that's all very exciting. Uh, we have some work in our lab looking at uh, soluble amniotic membrane and a compound called selenomycin, which um, has been found to actually reverse some of the SCAR phenotype. And so those are all exciting. But I, I think what I'm most excited about is, is what's our closest uh, agent right now, which is metrotrexate. Um, Dean, how about you? I, I, 
maybe you can just give us a little, since there's a lot of excitement about methotrexate, can you give us a, a little update on that, on that program before we go to last thoughts? Yeah, so the GARD trial, a goal was to enroll 100 patients. And at first, patients were randomized to standard of care, which is just receiving surgery in the normal way and no drug versus standard of care surgery plus methotrexate. And the goal was to have a one-to-one -one randomization, so roughly 50 patients in each group. At some point during the study, uh, the protocol was altered to put uh, all of the patients into the standard of care surgery plus methotrexate arm. And enrollment uh, should be completed in the near future. And then we'll be able to uh, evaluate the effect. Keep in mind that the power to detect a difference in this study is relatively low due to the small number of patients. Uh, it's also uh, has some difficulties as, as I think you guys mentioned before with surgeon variability in studies. It's, it's very difficult to do a surgical study with all the criteria. Uh, I mean, all the variables the same except for the drug. So. Uh, surgical studies have their challenges, but nevertheless, uh, I think we'll, we'll get some answer whether there's a signal that the drug might work or maybe that the drug doesn't work. And the company will then uh, decide either to go forward with uh, continuing to enroll in the same fashion or starting another study, altering some uh, part of the protocol or maybe abandoning it if it doesn't work. So I think uh, it's an exciting time that we're going to find out some results. A lot of credit to you, Dean. You're being very modest, but um, surgical challenges have their um, have their inherent to to certain in those trials. But you've you've got us to that point, and the company is going forward, and and we are looking forward to that for sure. Um, we we're looking for last thoughts now, and maybe we'll start with Avni, if uh, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, I think, you know, I just would echo that it's a really exciting time to be a surgeon. Um, a lot of surgical diseases like PVR, because they're rare, don't get as much attention as medical diseases um, like AMD and diabetic retinopathy. And thank, thanks to leaders like Dean and all of the work that other researchers like Ajay and Leo and Ali are doing. Um, we're looking into what is a very small percentage of our overall patient population, but um, something that haunts all of us as surgeons. Um, and so I'm excited to be on the precipice of hopefully new discoveries in terms of the pathophysiology and also potential adjuncts that are outside of surgery to add to our toolbox. Ali? Yeah, I think, um, uh, same uh, preclinical work, active clinical trials, and then uh, evaluating our own surgical techniques to see if there's something even iatrogenic we might be doing that could be making this worse. So I think there's still a lot to learn. And uh, I think maybe people lost interest in PVR for a little while because nothing was working, but I think uh, the interest is back. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Ajay. Yeah, I agree with Ali. When we, um, when I was a fellow, there were so few like topics in Arvo about PBR. And now uh, at the last Arvo meeting, there was like 
at least like four or five times as many um, talks and posters on this topic. And so it definitely seems like there's a revived interest. And I think with all the advancements that are going on with analysis of genetics, um, single cell analysis, we have the opportunity to now revisit some of the older studies that were done in the past that weren't fruitful with obtaining patient samples um, to try to better understand the pathophysiology and then work towards trying to um, develop more pharmacological agents. And so it's, it's a super exciting time right now, I think, for PBR. Dean. I'm most excited that you have three wonderful superstars here, Avni, Ali, and AJ, who are excited about this topic. And frankly, I think their contributions over the course of their uh, career uh, will be tremendous. You know, these are three brilliant people we all know well. They're great surgeons and they practice evidence-based medicine and they're really advancing the field. And I, I'm most excited about that, frankly. I mean, it's the best thing about this field is who we work with. You know, Bob and Alan, three of us have known each other for years. I've learned a tremendous amount from you guys, but I love the fact that these young people are just really uh, amazing in every respect. That's really the most, wonderful thing about being in this profession, having colleagues like uh, the people I see on the screen here. Well, Dean, you're part of that group of young people bringing pharmacotherapy to PBR. I mean, when Alan and I were training, it was uh, mechanical improvements and illumination, visualization, wide angle visualization, tools, forceps that really worked, things like that. But now we're finally bringing pharmacotherapy to this field as has happened in the past, you know, to uh, our anti-VEGF world, which dominates our clinics. But it's nice to finally bring pharmacotherapy to this really important topic. And uh, I wanna thank everyone for joining us today and, and really sharing your insights, your expertise with everyone. This is a fantastically exciting topic now because of these advances. And I really wanna thank you all for uh, sharing with us today. This has been a wonderful discussion, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. This concludes this episode on surgical considerations for PVR. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.